Hey, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for today, uh, attending today's second of four presentations of Getting Your Finances on Track with Plan Smart RetireWise workshop series. Uh, good news today for the second presentation. Um, it's getting really interesting. Uh, those that attended last week, it was just kind of building the foundation. Uh, so today we're gonna get more into the weeds and we've got some more goodies for you. Uh, so today is gonna be about creating and managing wealth. And today with me, of course, uh, the um, same person as, as last week, Jimmy Deal. Jimmy, if you wanted to say hi to everyone, uh, I'm, I'm sure everyone's glad to, to hear your voice. Yeah, good morning. I'm looking forward to the, today's session. Awesome. Uh, so again, everyone, uh, Nathan LaCroix here. I'm the networking liaison with the Dickerson Group, uh, just here to promote collaboration between the carriers and the brokers. And really, again, the goal of these presentations is to share with your clients uh, the fundamentals of getting their finances on track, as well as yours, too, if you're looking into getting your finances on track as well. Uh, so to the brokers on the line right now, just wanted to thank you for wanting to know a little bit more about PlanSmart and their RetireWise solutions. And of course, to those clients invited today by your agents, just wanted all of you to know you're in very knowledgeable, capable hands. We do appreciate you working with your broker on a regular basis. So really they can provide you with the insight for tried and true solutions. They are here to do right by you and really navigate this fluent environment we find ourselves in. So it's really more important than ever to really continue to work with them. Uh, real quick, some housekeeping items. So we currently have everyone on mute just so we can focus on the content. Um, but however, you will notice a toolbox on the right-hand side of the screen uh, with a chat or a questions box. So during the presentation, feel free to ask or comment on anything that you see. Uh, and at the end of the presentation, we'll all personally field those questions over to Jimmy and answer as many as we can uh, for the sake of time. If there's any that we can't get to, we'll just create a little FAQ at the end. Uh, and of course, we'll be sending out some additional documents uh, for you to review after the presentation um, and our contact information. So if something does come up afterwards, feel free to reach out to us and we'll be happy to have those one-on-one -on -one chats with you. Uh, also, real quick, because this workshop entails proprietary information, again, this meeting, these series, they're not being recorded. However, afterwards, we will send you contact information and some really beneficial documents we think you'll find useful that can accompany this, this presentation, i.e., basically, it's homework, you know, uh, things that you can take home with yourself uh, and build your, your wealth uh, on a personal level. Uh, and really, that's uh, kind of what brings us here today uh, with Dickerson. Just real quick, just a recap. Uh, we do believe in collaboration. So right now, what we're doing is we're working with Jimmy. We're working with MetLife. Uh, and it's all part of our organization, the Alera Group. Uh, since 2018, we're, we're part of this big uh, this this big conglomerate of, uh, of businesses, of resources, of partners and colleagues. So just know that we are your dream team. We're your back office uh, for you agents out there. So we're able to provide our resources, our best practices, and really um, bring you to the national footprint while also you providing local uh, assistance to all of your clients. So if you are looking to expand, we're definitely here to help you out. Uh, but again, that's where it comes into collaboration and diversity. We want to make sure that we are behind the scenes so you guys look like the rock star. Uh, and, and really, that's what we've been doing ever since Carl started this, this company with Dickerson back in 1965. Uh, but real quick, what I wanted to do is just uh, transition over to Jimmy as well. So again, this is the second workshop of the Plan Smart RetireWise series. 
So we are glad you made it. Again, if you have registered for this one, you've automatically been registered for the remaining two. And they're being held the same time every week, Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. So with that, I now want to hand off the controls over to Jimmy Deal. Um, so he's going to explain how to do this more efficiently. Uh, before I do, again, real quick, uh, we're going to be sending you some documents like the RetireWise Financial Education Workshop that you see here. You're also going to get your uh, budget worksheet as well. If you haven't received that last week, uh, we'll be resending it. And to those who still didn't get it, just, again, contact myself. Uh, one more thing as well, definitely make sure to uh, take a look at the events calendar upcoming. I'm going to send out the link, so be sure to bookmark these because we do have a lot of uh, really good content over the next couple of weeks. So be sure to check out these additional webinars that are upcoming, especially with the, again, the fin getting your finances on track. We have a couple of 401k mandate webinars to you group uh, brokers out there too. Uh, leadership summits as well. So again, uh, a wealth of knowledge and information uh, right at your fingertips with, with this. Uh, so with that, again, I'm gonna hand this over to Jimmy. So Jimmy, while I'm transitioning the controls over to you, if you want to say hi to everyone one more time, feel free to do so. Yeah, no problem. And just remind, I think as soon as you click it, it should allow me, Nathan, to go to the flip over yet, sharing, right? Show my screen. There we go. So I'm saying hi to everyone, but I'm also multitasking over here and making sure that we get up and running. How does that look? Uh, looks great. I can see the screen. For those awesome. of you in attendance, if you want, if you can see everything, if everything, if you can hear everything, in the questions or chat box, if you just wanted to type in yes, just so we know that, you know, Murphy's Law isn't working hard today. <laughs> yeah, and uh, keep the uh, keep the chat box going to Nathan, and I'll pause like I normally do. We'll hold the majority of the questions for the end, but I'm going to have a little fun today, too, to have it interactive and let's just call it kind of like the price is right after certain slides or statistics. I'm going to just say, hey, higher or lower or type in a random number. What do you think? And it's, it's just going to be more fun and engaging that way. So I'm glad that the chat box is uh, functioning on this platform because uh, with compliance, it just depends on what we're using these days, right? Like Teams, Zoom, so on and so forth. So I'm going to have a little fun with oh, it yeah. just, just to let everybody know. So uh, yes, thank you again, Nathan. Thank you to Dickerson. Um, you know, this is always very rewarding to present to really just a broad spectrum, right? I remember when I was first asked to present to a company, uh, you know, like Dickerson, it, it you, you kind of get overwhelmed as an advisor, right? Because you're like, oh my gosh, now I'm presenting to a lot of licensed individuals and their clients and their staff on there and you know you know how that is it's just kind of overwhelming you got to pump yourself up but it's actually been the most rewarding um just because you know we all know that we've passed insurance exams or investment exams or we hear about a lot of this stuff in the news and the media you know what's the ideal amount to retire where should you save money what should you invest in? So, you know, I'm really looking forward to, to kind of breaking this down and, and bringing, you know, my years of experience, plus a lot of the mentors. I think that's what is most important and, and my clients, right? Like I do personal financial planning here in, in an office located in Northern California, but I have clients in just about every state and even a couple overseas. 
Um, and that's really where you learn, right? And put it to practical use of successfully helping people retire. And it's, it's very rewarding. So this is a little bit about my background in bio. I covered it last week. Um, I always like to say, you're not here to learn about me though. We're here to learn about the material and the RetireWise program that can be offered to a lot of different um, you know, corporations, entities, small businesses, and, and that's what it's all about. So I'm gonna dive in, do one last uh, sound check, Nathan, we good to go. And, I, and I'm gonna get rolling here and there's about, I don't know, 25 slides. I'm gonna probably tell a story real quick for each one and then leave 10 minutes at the end for questions. Uh, and that's my plan at least. Okay. And hopefully we can stick to it and I don't elaborate too much, but we good to go. We are good to go. I can see the screen and we can hear you just fine. Awesome. So last week, uh, Nathan said it best. It was, you know, we have to crawl before we walk, we gotta walk before we run and all that good stuff. But you know, expenses, tax strategies and goals, I hope, you know, that's something that we do think about and, and not constantly, right? I don't know anybody who wants to say, oh, how much did we spend this month? Or we absolutely have to create a budget. I mentioned last week, budget can sometimes have a negative connotation to it, but I like to call it cash flow mapping. Just where is money going? Are we staying within the rules of, you know, 50% of our take-home pays going towards all of our fixed expenses, 20% going to, say, retirement or long-term assets? And yes, it is okay to spend the additional 20 or 30% if you're fortunate enough to do so, depending on your fixed expenses. Today, we're going to talk about creating and managing wealth. When I build financial plans, there's usually four pillars, right? One's cash flow and debt management, one's insurances, one's investments, and one's tax planning or estate planning. And of those four, without fail, people want to talk about investments. And I get it. It's exciting, right? And we're going to talk a lot about accumulation today right there in section two, the green for money. Uh, but I will say they're all equally important. And so this, this, um, blueprint, if you will, could be flipped for some people. Risk management could be maybe towards uh, the foundation. In my opinion, I actually think your employer benefits you get in your risk management and your cash and emergency savings make the most sense for a strong foundation as we build the house, right? Or add on to it. But everyone's different, equally important though. So we're gonna talk about the rule of 25. Um, meaning how much money will you need to retire? It's a fun one. I'm gonna have a little fun with that. A lot of these general rules of thumbs that were created in the 80s, 90s, don't exactly hold up today, but they're still widely discussed. So I wanna make you familiar with that. You're also gonna get a little bit of the 4% rule opinion or where we're at with it. If you've ever heard of the safe withdrawal rule from you know big sum of money, hopefully. We're gonna talk about risk tolerance assessments and then reviewing investments regularly, but not too often to make irrational decisions. So the rule of 25, uh, I get this question a lot. Um, you know you know how we're always pushed million dollars in your 401k or 403b, or you need 1.5 or you need two. And I always kind of smile whenever I see that. And, and some of you are probably getting a sense of where I'm heading with this. If you go to fidelity.com, vanguard.com, T. Rowe Price, BlackRock, doesn't matter. It could be your own bank. You know, have you, has anybody ever noticed like when it says type in your age, how much you save, and if you increase it by one, two, or 3%, you have 
this much more money um, to spend or this much higher success in retirement? Well, I have news for you. You know, it doesn't take a financial planner or a genius to say if you if you save more and you get a better rate of return and you play around with those bar graphs, it's going to spit out a, a, um, a number that's more appealing or the graph's going to be more green versus red. There is some sort of numbers or general rules, th rules of thumb going on in the background, one of which is if you take your salary and in this case on the screen, say you're making 70000 a year and you want to multiply it by 25 this is called the rule of 25 if you could afford without all your everyday expenses right to sock away 1.75 million dollars now we're going to talk about different types of accounts but a lot of people you know will default to i need 1.75 million in my retirement account the four percent rule then kicks in and if you multiply 1.75 times 0.04 you will match your salary each year in retirement. In other words, you could draw down what you're used to earning based on that number. That's what the rule of 25 is. Now, here are my quick comments before I move on and spend too much time on this. Yes, we're, we're told you gotta have this huge nest egg. I cannot tell you how many times though I've successfully seen people retire in their 60s, 70s, 80s and beyond with numbers all over the place not 1.75 million it could be 700,000 but their expenses are low their houses are paid off there's not increased health care costs for a while i've seen people have pension income rental income social security the reason why i'm telling you this is because i don't want anybody on this call to feel like they're necessarily way behind because each situation's different and you know 1.75 million is not easy to do especially if you live somewhere with a lot of responsibilities right like high monthly expenses so all is not lost but that is what the rule of 25 is and the four percent rule was created in 1994 by a gentleman named william bangan and it really just said if you have a million dollars in a 401k or any account, as long as you're not spending more than 40,000 a year, if the markets go up or down or you're in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you, you shouldn't run out of money. And that's a pretty conservative amount for back then, but keep in mind that's when bonds and fixed income were paying, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten 10%, whether it was from the federal government or even a CD, you could walk in and, and buy at the bank. So the investment spectrum, this is a fun one. Um, with all of these different types of mutual funds and these things called ETFs, exchange traded funds, uh, publicly traded stocks, um, you've got Bitcoin, digital currency, blockchain, whatever you want to call it, these, these cool things called non-fungible tokens, which is just digital art in my opinion. Guess what? It, this has never changed. They always either fit in the foundational side of the investment spectrum, conservative, growth, or alternative. Now, the reason why you don't see mutual funds or ETFs on there, and I'm gonna explain in a moment, is because they are blended amongst all of these categories depending on which situation you go. But the key takeaway for this slide is, is that no matter what you're invested in or saved towards, they almost always, without a doubt, 
fall either in those savings, money market, CD, checking accounts. That's the foundational tools, or I call it the wealth coordination accounts because money comes in and out. You got conservative end of the spectrum or kind of right there to the right, which could include municipal bonds, government bonds, and corporate bonds. You could have growth-oriented assets, and that's where we could put in, along with stocks, um, anything that's like a growth mutual fund or equity-based mutual fund or ETF. And then you've got alternatives as well, which could be, again, precious metals, real estate, art, all this digital stuff. Um, they call it blockchain. It's not just Bitcoin, but it could be NFTs and whatnot. Um, but I'll tell you this, usually we get questions ahead of time and I just want to address this, you know, right off the bat. It's okay to take a calculated risk, just like anything. Um, that could even be with real estate. I, I'm sure there's people on this call that have struck out with a rental property or it just didn't work out when it was popular, just like Bitcoin and all this other stuff. That's why that cash flow worksheet that or the mapping that I had Nathan send out to the group. And if you didn't get it, just let us know. We'll send it again. You know, if you've got positive cash flow or you've got a good amount above your six month emergency reserve in cash savings, it's more of a mental thing than anything to say, I'm going to take a calculated risk and put 10 grand over here or I'm going to save every month into this newer kind of asset class called blockchain or whatever it is and really that doesn't change from a behavioral finance standpoint for whatever it is that's newer or exciting and and that's half the battle and I'll, I'll, I'll mix in a lot of behavioral finance uh, concepts throughout today's conversation because it's so true based on psychology it's fascinating so understanding the investment risk uh, we've all heard Lower risk, lower return, you gotta take higher risk in order to get a high potential return. I mean, yes and no. I, I will tell you, everyone's different though. If you were to say to somebody, hey, Nathan, uh, what do you think? Do you think uh, plus seven or minus seven sounds kind of good to you? Like you could lose 7%, that's kind of normal for this allocation or how you're invested. It's historically, you know, been somewhere between five and seven percent on the upside. There's these anomalies called standard deviation, and and how often it falls within that range of, uh, you know, actual results. But at the end of the day, if I ask Nathan that question and he says, you know what, I can handle seven percent on the downside most of the time, but seven on the upside sounds pretty good. Well, guess what? He's not considered super high risk. But to him, that might be moderate, that could be conservative. It's all about expectations. And I will tell you this too, I struggle with the younger generations. I get along the best with people that I build plans for in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I'm in my 30s, just so everybody knows. The reason why is that they have more life experience and they have more reasonable expectations. And I don't mean that I have plenty of clients in their 20s and 30s, but it's it's very, very apparent that they've never seen a market downturn except for maybe January of this year, maybe December of 2018 if they were paying attention. But think about that. None of them have had, because they just got hired in 2010s, right? They've never been through 87, the early 2000s, 08. And since then, 
it's been pretty much unicorns and rainbows. I know everyone's freaking out over the last six to eight weeks, but I'm gonna expand on that here in a little bit as well. But each person has their own rationale for what they what sounds good to them. So the whole, you gotta take on a ton of risk for a high return, well, that's in the eye of the beholder, as cheesy as that sounds. Why am I bringing up an inflation slide again when we covered inflation last week? Well, we can't just stick our head in the sand, right? And say, I only wanna be in cash under the mattress or my favorite is like, take one of those uh, coffee cans from back in the day when you saw the 80s commercials, right? I think it's Folgers um, or Yerba or whatever the case it is. Can't bury them in the backyard. Can't always rely on bonds. There needs to be different pools of money that are for maybe zero to two years out. There needs to be another midterm bucket for year three to 10, 10 beyond. 10 and beyond, no matter what your age is, is truly, you do have to have some equities, even if it's scary and there's some volatility. Why are we bringing that up? Because things might cost more. I believe last week I said, with inflation, yes, I, I, re, you know, I, I saw all the headlines you saw, we're at 7.5%. And first of all, I hope some of you asked 7.5% of what? Because that data could strip out food, groceries, gas, you know, transportation. It could include it. Um, but my point is, whether we're in a low inflationary environment, stagnant or flat, or we're in um, a high inflationary environment, each person on this call, based on their household, has their own personal inflation rate. And I'll give you an example, a family of four or six, say they have two or three kids, they have a couple dogs, they have after school programs, they've got college tuition, they have to commute pre-COVID days, 25, 30 miles each direction and actually fill up their gas tank more than once a week, or they have a suburban to get the kids around to and from soccer practice is gonna spend a heck of a lot more on goods and services, depending on which ones are high or low based on inflation and supply chain, than the person who lives alone, doesn't spend a lot and you know cooks for themselves and doesn't eat out or do anything. That will never change. So why am I giving you this input versus saying, look at this Ford Mustang from 1985 on the screen and look at how much it costs today. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. You do need equities. You need things that outpace inflation, but you really can't predict which goods and services you're going to consume at the same rate the enti your entire life. And I hope it changes. I hope that your inflation rates change because maybe the kids are now self-sufficient and out on their own. Now maybe you're spending those dollars on vacations or cruises or doing fun things. Sometimes they cost a lot of money, sometimes they don't. So that's what I that's why I wanted to tie that back to the investment spectrum. But you know, saying every everything is gonna go up by three or five percent in a financial plan, in my opinion, is not the way to do it. You've got to customize it. What's all this talk about bonds and interest rates? First, if you're still working and saving money, you really shouldn't pay attention to this. However, I know people like to get real technical when they look at charts, graphs, pie charts. They even explain to their clients, well, I think we should do this or we should do that. Um, here's what it comes down to. 
it's supply and demand. That's the beauty of the market. It can sometimes be the curse of the market, but this is the easiest way I can explain why interest rates have an inverse relationship to bond prices. Now I will say interest rates matter if somebody is refinancing a house or purchasing a house. But before I get into how bonds work, I will tell you this, and hopefully some of you will laugh. If I would have told my parents in the 1980s, hey mom and dad, I'm gonna be upset in 2022 when I buy my first home because interest rates are gonna go from 3.25 or three and a half to 3.85 and I'm gonna be really upset about it and I'm gonna talk about, oh my gosh, interest rates are going through the roof. They would have looked at me as if I had three heads. They would have said, that's great. See this house that you're in right now? This was 14% interest for our first decade that we were paying the mortgage. Go play with your friends, okay? So first, everything's relative. However, yes, it does affect things that we actually, you know, more short-term, like refinancing a house and or buying a house. Now back to bonds, that was just my little bit of humor. And I hope again, some of you are laughing if you did purchase anything in the 80s, 90s, or even early 2000s. So if I'm holding a bond that pays 7% in this situation, or actually I'm just gonna say, I'm holding a bond that pays 5%. And I go to Nathan and I say, hey, Nathan, you want my 5% bond? And he's gonna say, I don't know, Jimmy, I can go to the federal government because they just raise interest rates and they're issuing new debt securities for seven. How much are you going to sell me your bond for? Well, I was really hoping to sell it for to you for the thousand dollars that I paid for it. And he's going to laugh at me and say, why the heck would I do that, Jimmy, when I can go get one for seven for the same price? Therefore, I'm going to have to unload my 5% bond to him at a discount or in the open market or say who wants it for 875 bucks. Now, conversely, if I'm holding that 5% bond, and this is not on the screen, this part of the example, and he's holding a 3% bond. I locked mine in a while ago. He, he could go get one you know, at current rates. And he comes to me and says, hey, Jimmy, I really want your 5% bond because I'm only getting two or three over here. I'm gonna say, okay, Nathan, what would you like to offer me for it? Well, I'd really like to just buy it from you for a thousand dollars. And I'm gonna laugh at him and say, yeah, but then if I sell it to you, I have to go buy an inferior one at two or 3%. Why don't you try again? And he's gonna say, all right, how about 1100 bucks? How about 1200 bucks? You see where I'm going with this? Unless you're holding individual bonds and or relying off of just those bond sleeves for income and you're currently retired, this will go on all your life of the accumulation phase and it will level out eventually that's what fund managers do and a lot of you do have bonds whether you know it or not packaged in mutual funds or etfs or at least a portion of them it's their job to replace them when new issues come out and or they can get a better interest rate you will see fluctuations in accounts along the way. But a lot of the rebalancing or we got rid of these midterm and bought long-term or vice versa, if you do read the actual transactions from the fund managers or you do it on your own, that's what's happening behind the scenes. So hopefully that kind of stuck with you the way I explained it, but I always just like to have fun with it and say, well, 
let's just play the game of like, what are you willing to pay me if mine's better or worse than what you have? That's all it comes down to. Diversify. This is the fun one. Um, although I think this stuff's fun. That's why I do it for a living. So I guess some people could say this is boring, but I actually like this stuff. So determinants of portfolio performance. Um, believe it or not, very few people can time the market. Only 1.8% historically of the overall performance of a diversified portfolio can actually be tied to, we just got in and out at the right time. Now, there are people who do day trading for a living. There are people on MSNBC and CNN and Mad Money. The problem is, is that's being thrown in our face. And those are the ones with eight computer screens going on in the background and they live it, breathe it, work it. They're doing it 60 hours a week. They're doing it even after hours in the US because they're watching Asian markets, Europe, you name it. That's their full-time job. We get excited when we see that. And all of a sudden now we can, we say to ourselves, I could do this, even though I'm a full-time parent, I work full-time. I've got soccer practice to go to, but you know what? I can totally do this for like an hour or two a week and become a millionaire. There's a problem there, right? I'm not saying it's not possible, but usually time, energy, and interest get in the way. Security selection. This is an interesting one. Um, yes, you could absolutely pick companies that you believe in, that you consume, that maybe you're following or reading or tracking, and that could absolutely be, be a good driver and overall performance. Now, when it comes to security selection, this is where I'm going to have a little fun with everyone and we can play it like the price is right. So in the chat box. I want a lot of you just to type in a random number. First thing that comes up, and I want you to do it quickly so you don't Google it, but I mentioned before, there's all these things called exchange traded funds, which really are just packaged mutual funds that trade like stocks, mutual funds themselves, which have been around for a really long time. And there's a lot of publicly traded stocks, not only in the US, but also worldwide. Now this number's in the thousands if not tens of thousands, how many choices do we have? Whether you're in the business or you go to E-Trade or Schwab or Fidelity or Betterment or Robinhood, how many thousand choices? Just type in the first thing of different securities could we purchase, trade or sell? Type it in. And Nathan, I'm gonna take a sip of water. Just give me five or so of people's guesses of how many choices we have when it comes to security selection in the open marketplace with technology at a fingertip through an app or a broker. Yeah, let me check on that. Um, I guess it's uh, whoever's the highest without going over, price is right exactly. rules. Exactly, like the I'm price gonna, is right, yes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put down one or 1100. Um, <laughs> yeah, but we got like Pat's and Millions, Tigran 7500, 3400 uh marvin good uh good answer um yeah oh 5600 so we're kind of going into the whole thousands maybe not tens of thousands so okay. we're, we're kind of keeping it in that threshold all right so um, we're trying to be conservative here on our answers who said whoever said 7500 would be the winner i believe Here's uh, the hey you got it 
there are 7,600 ETFs available, over 7,000 mutual funds available, and over 5,900 publicly traded stocks for over 20,500 options. And we haven't even gotten into options or derivatives. We're not going to teach that. Don't worry. But that is 20,000 choices. Now, what the heck is the difference between them all? Not a whole lot, going back to that investment spectrum, but think about it. You've got these major market makers and or marketers, in my opinion, who do a really good job, right? Let's just take BlackRock, Invesco, Fidelity, Vanguard, T. Rowe Price. There's a ton of them out there. What are they constantly doing? They're constantly repackaging the way they say, this is an S&P 500 index fund. This is their version of the small cap fund. This is their innovative technology fund. Now, could it hold a lot of the same companies? Absolutely, but the slightest difference of saying we're gonna overweight Tesla versus Apple or Meta or Facebook or whatever we're calling it these days, um, that is technically a different security with a different ticker symbol with a different opportunity to buy it. So does it seem overwhelming with 20,000 choices? You bet. Is that why some people are falling flat on their face with doing it on their own? Yes. I also do believe that you should have a do-it-yourself account, a DIY. I'm not against Robinhood, Betterment, any of the fun stuff online. I trade in a personal Schwab account outside of actually portfolio managers long-term, but I just wanted to clarify that, that it's fun because there's so many choices, but at the end of the day, the reason why there's so many is because each custodian or each mutual fund company is going to have the same menu, if not an expanded than a competitor, but it's the way that they're actually packaging the funds within that fund or portfolio that makes it a different investment and or ticker symbol. And so therefore that's why there's so many to choose from. Hopefully that helps. And it's just, that was more fun than anything else. So um, that's why I also mentioned life experience, right? The, the ones that I struggle with have only seen since 2009 and they probably weren't even working until 2015 or 16. They, they truly believe the market only goes up by 15, 20, 30, 40 percent. Um, and, you know, they're going to they're going to hopefully not put too much into the do it yourself account or more importantly, if they stay disciplined, buy and hold, and don't make random changes, they'll be okay. That's the whole Vanguard approach from Jack Bogle back in the day. All right, next fun story, a key takeaway of not jumping all over the place, hopefully, and you know, reading Money Magazine, or Warren Buffett said that small cap equity was the absolute best in 2013. Guess what? He was already doing it in 2009, 10, 11, and, and exceeded expectations with those companies in 2013. And then once everybody else got wind of it, by two years later, it was down below there in 2015. This will always happen. Now, that probably wasn't the best example with Warren Buffett. He really believes in actually companies that pay strong dividends, Bank of America, right? He created a fund that has Apple on it, has Microsoft, has B of A. He is a very, very disciplined investor. And I'm gonna repeat that, disciplined investor and has self-control. In behavioral finance, the problem is, and it kind of ties back to that previous chart, 95% of us 
have a lack of discipline or self-control. It's not just, I know that's a behavioral finance statement, but that's psychology. 95% of us have a lack of self-discipline or control. So when you tie that with then making investment decisions or money decisions, that's why very few people fit into that 5% or the person bragging at the cocktail party of how well they're doing. Um, chances are they're not talking about the losses either, but there are people who just usually are disciplined in self-control, not necessarily the smartest people in the world. Now, here's my fun story. Who's been stuck in traffic on this call? Just, I mean, you can just say, we. I would hope we all have unless you don't drive. Whether you're in LA, Chicago, Northern California, overseas, we've all been in that opening scene of uh, office space, if anyone's seen it, where you're stuck, frustrated, you look to the left, you look to the right on the freeway or the highway, and the other lanes are moving, your lane's not. So what do you do? You look to safely cut someone off real fast so that you can game the system and move on. I equate that to people who jump around a lot and really read the recency bias or what just happened you know, last year, and then they shift everything into that strategy. Uh, what's fun about that is, is we really, you know, what happens when you move lanes, you, you, you smile, you like are proud of yourself. And then all of a sudden the lane that you got into comes to a screeching halt and the one you just left starts moving forward. So again, I hope that brings some humor and smile to people's faces this morning. We've all been there. Um, but the whole point is really to, you know, really flourish consistently, say in the top third of this uh, asset allocation chart. We don't want to be all over the place, but if we can, you know, get those upsides consistently in different assets, going back to a diversified portfolio and really just kind of float somewhere up in here, we won't worry as much about the ups and downs along the way. So that's my fun story with traffic to kind of say, you know, investment, it, it's the investment highway, but we've all been there. Risk tolerance. Um, this is going to be part of the bonus material, the goodies that I send out to um, Nathan. And I'm going to send two versions. This one, you can print it out, circle the numbers, add up your score, and it tells you, you know, if you're like kind of moderate, conservative, moderate, aggressive, or aggressive. But I have a different version too, Nathan, I'm going to send you that's actually, um, it's more interactive and you can just click with a radio button each category and it adds your score up for you. And then the second page, does a really good job of explaining if you're conservative, these are the asset classes that you'll most likely be investing in um, more often than not. If you're moderate, these are some of the names and what it means within the fund. So I'm gonna do that. I think it's really important. It's something that I've started using with my clients versus some of these other types of uh, risk tolerances that people might be familiar with. It's just a little bit newer and fresh. And again, going back to behavioral finance, uh, this was created by psychologists for the investment world because it's asking essentially the same question five to six different times. Um, and it, it's kind of fascinating. And my other point here is if you haven't done one in five or 10 years, revisit it, make it a part of your financial plan. Like when you check beneficiaries an annually to make sure there's no mistakes or errors. I'm not saying do this every year because then you're probably going to fall into that recency bias of, uh-oh, 
you know, Russia and Ukraine really, you know, is setting the market off. And, and if I take it next month, it might be different than a year from now. But definitely keep it on your radar. And a positive impact could be what if you got a raise, salary, promotion? That might change your thoughts, attitudes, feelings towards risk. Or what if you have a parent that was able to go back to work after raising the kid or a spouse or a partner, and all of a sudden you go from one income in the household to dual incomes? And each one of you should take it. If you're single, take it. If you have two people within a household, make them each do one. It is okay to not be on the same page for everything. And then you just cater different portfolios or saving strategies to each member of the household, even though it's part of an overall bigger plan. Pie charts. Don't take this for face value of what's on the screen. This is not exactly how it would be invested. It always changes based on the fund manager's allocations, but I just wanna give you a quick rundown of what do these pie charts usually mean on quarterly statements. Well, if someone's conservative, you might see a big chunk of the pie being intermediate bonds and or you know could be some cash position in the yellow there could have a sleeve of REITs, could have um, you know even high yield bonds. If you shift over towards the moderate, you're probably gonna have more of the S&P 500 blue chip companies, meaning the ones that don't really fluctuate a lot in value, but they're stalwarts and they don't really, uh, there's no big surprises one way or the other. And there's also not the risk of them all going out of business. Um, mid cap is just capitalization by value. How big are they? Um, you know, at one point in time, and then when I go over to aggressive here, you're gonna have small cap value growth international. Now, if you really want to get, get in the weeds of this, the definitions on like NerdWallet, Investopedia.com, I think do do a great job of explaining what the heck is the difference, Jimmy, between small cap value or small cap growth or even large cap value and growth. Just means which ones have a high to price to earnings ratio and which ones have a relatively low price to earnings. Think of it like walking in the Macy's or Nordstrom's. They're both great companies, um, but it's just, are they geared towards higher priced, higher reward potentially or explosive growth or reasonably priced, but therefore we're just gonna get more stability. Now, what is a small cap company? There's even micro cap and there's mega cap these days, but this is going back for the last 30 years. When Apple was created in a garage, right? Actually right here, kind of in our backyard in Northern California, um, they didn't even exist yet until they registered as a company, started producing computers, personal computers. Eventually they would have hit the micro cap stage based on volume, growth, sales, then they would have graduated at a certain point to the small cap company. And eventually now we're into this, you know, large cap or mega cap that we know today. That's all it means. Now, why are the small caps important, especially for an aggressive investor? Well, we need to find the next Amazons, Apples, Googles, Teslas, and each company, especially here in the Bay Area, it's kind of annoying every two seconds when there's a new IPO. It's cool if you know someone, right, that got to be in there with stock options, but we don't really know because there's so many things coming out. But if you see a small cap fund, you have a higher chance of capturing some of those companies that make it. You also have a higher chance of volatility along the way 
but it can be a very exciting fund or a company to be invested in, and that's part of the game as well. All right, managing risk with the bucket approach. Only have a few more slides here and uh, doing okay with timing. So hopefully we're all hanging in there. So how do we figure this out? Well, we gotta have different buckets or pools of money for different times in our life. Now money, later money, much later money. The way I classify this and have these conversations with clients is, listen, if you need a bigger house in a newer school district or you really have a big project coming up in the next year or two, unfortunately, I'm going to give you the boring answer of you got to keep your 50 or 100 grand or six months emergency reserves in a money market account, a CD, online, high yield, whatever you want to call it. It's not high yield. That's a marketing scheme. But it's just you know, you're not going to get any kind of real interest or return because you have to have the liquidity. Now, there's 20 advisors down the street that will say, I will gladly invest your 100 grand for you, but I'm not going to be the guy that says you needed a new house on the market next year. You have the opportunity, but sorry, your 100 grand you gave me is now worth 65, 70 or 80. It's just not how it works for now money. Later money I truly believe later money are these brokerage accounts. I call it the brokerage account boom with Robinhood, Betterment, Fidelity, Schwab, E-Trade. You know, it's so funny too how the, their entire premise is no, no fees for trades. And everyone just flocks to it, but that means they have to know what they're doing with their 20,000 options, right, to invest in. But you know, you know what started that whole thing? The day traders, it was the day traders who didn't want to keep getting charged every time they dumped a stock or bought a new security. But then it was marketed to the consumers that say no fees for trades. Well, of course they want to house your securities because they can loan it to other broker dealers and they will upsell you on other services. But the later money can be what we purchase, individual stocks, ETFs, whatever it may be, but we do have to have the discipline because if it doesn't have an IRA title on it or a 401k title and there's no penalties to withdraw it and we're only worried about losses and or capital gains taxes, that can be a beautiful bucket during this brokerage account boom, as I call it, to put away five, 10 grand a year, a couple hundred bucks a month, whatever you can afford, knowing that maybe you have a two, I wouldn't even say two years, five to 15 year um, cycle to let the market do what it's supposed to do that can earn more than the banks and in interest. But again, you could dip into it from a liquidity standpoint along the way, but it really can't be for a short term profit, just in my opinion. Much later money, those will be the retirement accounts. I think 401ks, automatic deferment, 403Bs, 457s, matches from companies, can't touch it till 59 and a half, or shouldn't, I should say. Um, and that is your much later pool. It's usually the one with the longest time horizon, and it would be the most appropriate to have a more aggressive mix in, if you're okay with that risk tolerance. Let's talk quickly about taxes, and then I'm gonna wrap it up and turn it back over to Nathan and field some questions as well. Don't overlook asset location. I'm gonna repeat that. We've all kind of heard asset allocation. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't invest in just one fund or one company. Yes, 
but asset location is equally or more important than asset allocation. What do I mean by that? You cannot pump all your money into pre-tax deferred investments, i.e. the 401k. It's great if you can max it out. It's great to maximize the match from a company. Don't overlook though the real estate brokerage accounts um, or the Roth-like assets or life insurance or municipal bonds because here's the problem. That whole don't worry, you'll be in a lower tax bracket, you cannot guarantee that. Um, that is a very old saying that I actually don't see playing out very much because they changed a lot of the brackets in 2017 and it won't be the last time that it changes and it won't be the last time that legislation says, well, we're gonna count this now as earned income or we're gonna give you a break over here or whatever the case is. The majority of people do have a lot of their savings in 401k type programs. Nothing wrong with that. A lot of people have a head start because Roths and these other assets weren't even created until the last 10 or 15 years. But when you come down to coming up with a plan of saving 25 or 30% of your take home pay, it doesn't mean it needs to go all in one place is my point. Maybe you still put 15 grand a year or 20,500 down here. Maybe you put a couple grand over here, or maybe you put a couple grand up here with like a Roth 401k option. It is a beautiful thing to be able to pull from the right pool of money once you're retired when you actually know what bracket you're in. And here's what I'm gonna wrap up with here. Um, staying invested in the market is important. This is fascinating that if people miss the top five trading days, top 15, top 25, they did, they still either doubled their money, made a little bit of money, or kind of just broke even if they freaked out. I know this seems like, I don't know, Jimmy, that seems like it can't be true. Well, here's another price is right moment for you. After 2008, so I'm looking for a year that you can type in after 2008 when a lot of people, if they were still primarily in equity or growth mutual funds, they could have lost up to 40% or anywhere in between depending on how it was diversified. What year were most people, not even days, not months, after the 2008 gut punch? I want you to type in what year most people actually got fully invested back into the market if they moved to a cash position. Go for it. And it's after 2008. I'm going personally, I'm going with uh, 2014 because I know 2012, yeah. there was the whole ACA thing, there was a whole yeah. bunch of other stuff. There was that Mayan calendar. <laughs> Yeah, there's a full moon tomorrow night, so there's gonna be a market crash. Yeah, uh, a possible expect? end of the world, so pull everything out. Who knows what's gonna happen? So yep. I'm gonna say, yep. you know, after all of that died down, okay. I'm going with 2014, but we got some people like um, Joan going with 2012, uh, okay. Marvin 2015, Cynthia 2017. Uh, Pat, exactly 12 months later, so 2012 yeah. to 2013. So, yeah, looks like we're Great keeping answer. it close to the to 2000. I'll give you the answer in just a second. Here's a fun fact for you, though. I'm almost done with the certificate in behavioral finance. Um, they say that if it's sunny in London, New York, or California, when the stock market opens on a trading day, that the market 
historically will end up that day. That's a total side note. That's a squirrel moment from me. But they have done studies on warm weather or nice weather for stockbrokers and um, investment bankers versus if it's dreary and I go, well, I hope we're not basing it then off of like London or Seattle and it's more like a sunny New York day or California, but I found that funny. Whoever said 2012 is absolutely correct. Whoever said 12 months later would have been the best answer as far as taking advantage of the full bull market run. But think about that compared to what you're seeing on the screen. It took people nearly four years to get comfortable and get over it and that's exactly why it gives this chart some credence here is because it is true that the market's only open i think 270 days a year with with holidays and weekends and it is entirely possible that if you sat in a cash or a conservative position for four years during a 12-year bull market run, that you might not have gotten to participate either in the recovery and or exceeded what you previously had before. So that was just a little fun there. This wraps it up here with investors often buy at the top, sell at the bottom. This is actually kind of from a gambling kind of standpoint recovery, boom, slow down, so on and so forth. At the end of the day, I want everyone to know, and I just had a conversation with someone about this. If the market's going down like today, or I haven't checked it during this presentation, and you're all saving through payroll or you have clients saving through payroll, that's a good thing. You are dollar cost average and you're buying more shares. The most important thing is being disciplined in your accumulation years. Now, we're going to talk next week about preserving or being a little bit more careful with our distributions and uh, sequence of returns when we're heading into retirement or the distribution phase. But during the accumulation phase, every time you are, you know, um, deferring via payroll, your dollar costs averaging. And you shouldn't really care about what the account's doing as long as you're saving the same percentage or dollar amount every single payroll period. And then we'll pay attention to it as retirement gets closer. I call this, you walk in the Nordstrom's, things are on sale at Macy's prices. Now, some months you're gonna walk in the Macy's and be like, wow, the market's up. I'm really happy with my pools of money that have gone up, but wow, I only bought one-tenth of 1% 1 of Amazon in my mutual fund with my $500 deposit. That kind of sucks, but that's what dollar cost averaging is. Now, I'm gonna give you one other tip that happens to do with behavioral finance, and then I promise I will wrap up, Nathan, and leave five minutes for questions. If any of you have a brokerage account and you do have it linked to a checking or a savings and you're systematically putting money in every month, great. But for those of you who don't treat a brokerage account, not talking about payroll, which is autopilot and they invest for you every two or you know two weeks or twice a month, start treating your other accounts that you manage and or have on the side like you would a 401k. What do I mean by that? Link it to a checking or savings and put it on autopilot of $200 a month, 500 a month, 1,000 a month, whatever you can afford, and here's why. 
we rarely log into our 401ks and check the balance. At least I don't. And I've actually done this with my clients as a test to ask them, when was the last time you logged into your 401k? I don't know. I don't look at it. Then I ask them why. Well, because I'm saving every two weeks and I just don't have time for it. I go, great. But the hundred grand you put into this brokerage account, you're asking me once a month, how's it doing or logging in because you're seeing it go down the 95, up to 110, down the 92, back to 100. And you want to know why? And I just figured this out. We subliminally know that when we're dollar cost averaging and adding to it every month or consistently, we will stop worrying about it and making irrational decisions. So I'm going to leave you with that. Treat it like you would a retirement account where you are just practicing the self-discipline and the control and it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. And I'm not saying ignore the allocation or what you're comfortable with, but there's a lot of power in knowing that you're funding it systematically and that will keep us from worrying about it or having any kind of anxiety about what's going on in the news headlines or the stock markets in general. So I'm gonna wrap it up here. Um, that's my contact info and Nathan, definitely have time for a few questions, um, but that, that was a lot to cover, I know. And so thanks for bearing with me with the stories. I don't like to read slides. Well, thank you for all of the, the wealth of information. And actually I wanted to share with you uh, a little, little tidbit about the whole behavioral finance that that uh, Jimmy was talking about because when I first heard about the whole hey retire wise and you know financial growth and I mean me fairly young guy and I was just like ah, I didn't really care about retirement and then it really kind of hit home of the earlier you start investing diversifying the portfolio and trying to figure out you know what to do me personally I'm gonna show you right now this is what I was doing exactly what Jimmy was saying what many people do on Robinhood going like, oh, what's an, what is an ETF? Did a lot of Googling. I'm like, ooh, these look all, like these look really nice. And <laughs> I would, I you know, spend a few dollars. I'm like, you know what, let me try it out. Let me spend like $20. Let me see, you know, if there's anything I can, I can get into. But Jimmy is exactly right. And I think a lot of people out there are, are in my situation or what the situation I was in where the moment I invested, it was like that scene in, in office space i would check every hour every 10 minutes is it going up is it going down making those irrational decisions i would read news articles and i say should i invest in tesla and what's tesla doing oh i'm going to move all my stuff i'm going to spend money on tesla all of a sudden the moment i make that change i see a dip and then yep. I go, oh, I made the wrong decision. What's going on here and there? What about Google? Is Google going up? Oh, I see like it's up like one point. Uh, let me invest in that. Maybe I can catch the catch the wave and then go there. But the moment I invest in Google, all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, it's down like two points. I'm like, oh, what am I doing? So I quickly realized I don't know what I'm doing. And then there's yeah. a lot of Googling that I did. Um, you know, and then I actually started looking into this. I'm like, you know what? Let me do the worksheet. Kind of like, again, the analogy I had last week, it's like going to the gym and somebody saying, okay, go get fit. I'm like, I don't know what 90% of these machines actually do or even the first right. thing about getting fit, but maybe I'll Google some stuff and fumble my way through it. Right. And I quickly realized, you know what? I, I can't do this with my finances. I can't do this with my retirement. I can't fumble my way through and make big mistakes like that. And so I really started to learn, get focused, 
And that's when I go, okay, I may have the foundation, but I really wanted to know if I'm doing this right. And that's where Jimmy comes in. And, and of course, with the additional information that we're going to be sending over, also Jimmy's contact information. So if you want to reach out to him, do some like really in-depth one-on-ones and start working with him on a regular basis, that's kind of the mentorship, the coaching that's going to show you, okay, how to use all these tools effectively. Um, again, also think about it like, like in horticulture, you know, when, when if you plant a seed, to grow a plant, are you digging it up every five seconds to see if it's made any growth? No, what you do is you plant it, you water it, you take care of it, and you kind of leave it alone until you start to see it sprout. Exactly what Jimmy was talking about. It is about investing in the right things, setting it and forgetting it, because you will cause yourself so much anxiety because I know I did. I was checking it every single day. I'm like, I can't do this. I just want something that I can feel comfortable with. And I could really only do that with the right tools and the right people. And that's the most important thing, knowing the right people to really sit down and say, you know what, it's time to really air my dirty laundry and say, is this the, am I doing this correctly? This yeah. is where I want to be in X amount of years. You know, Nathan, can you help? I just, to, I just wanted to add one thing to that too, is that, and I'll cover this in session four, but choosing the right advisor, right? Like I am not against the do it yourself for the low cost, low fee. In fact, that's why I usually just charge a flat financial planning fee, like literally annually just to help monitor these things and give input, but it's not the old school, you got to roll over your assets to me, right? And I got to charge 1%. I am not against do it yourself by any means, but I think it just really helps as a sounding board, right? And and choosing the right advisor to work with too. I'm going to cover that in session four. It's not going to be a commercial for me, but it's like, how the heck has this all changed with 1-800-NUMBERS, do-it-yourself, an app, the stockbroker, the insurance person, right? Is what, what avenues are available for people for kind of just like a pressure check. Am I on track, whether you do it yourself or not and calculated risks. I have an account that I say, if I lost this money, it's not going to derail my entire plan. It's fun to do what Nathan just said, but it's kind of like an indoor cat where they they're scratching at the door and you throw them out there finally. And they think it's this like awesome world. And, and hopefully they don't run away. That'd be a bad story. But usually they call, come right back in, right? And they go, okay, I thought that was really cool, but it's a little overwhelming. So I'm going to leave you with that analogy. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, actually, uh, Marvin was asking about indexed annuities. I, I know that you talked about the different you know, portfolios, different things to invest yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you wanted to provide any thoughts about sure. index annuity real quick. Looks like that yeah, was a question no that a lot of people were saying. Um, no great presentation, yeah, so. index annuity, is, it, it's all about the expectation, right? And and again, I don't know, Marvin, if you're a broker or if it's a client relationship, but you know, I use every tool with my clients. And you know, th this is what I say to them. Look, whether they lower the caps, raise the caps, have a floor, there's a small fee, no fee, listen, it's a bond alternative. And if we're just wanting to protect this for five to seven years and make sure that we float between zero and 11%, or I've seen them, you know, the caps change from company to company, that's appropriate for somebody with a pool of money that they would treat maybe their 20 or 30 or 40% bonds. I personally don't put anybody any more than 35% of their overall portfolio. I treat it like the sleeve of a 65-35. There's, there's nothing wrong, but it's, it, it's the expectation because the last thing you want to do is say, 
you know, you could get 28% in the market and then maybe it's capped at, you know, again, anywhere from five to 20, depending on the situation. But if they're okay with zero to seven or zero to five or somewhere in between and can't lose their principal, they're not going to be upset. And it's the right fit for that person. Some people are going to say, no, I want the dividends. I know I'm not directly invested in the market. The, you know, the insurance company gets to keep it. But then it's like, well, yeah, they got to make money, especially if they're going to protect your downside. So index annuities, I mean, I... I, I've sold them to people, but it's part of a planning process. And then I have to let them know, hey, you're no longer just paying me a flat fee for my advice. If I execute this transaction, I will earn a commission. And it's funny because they go, okay, it's fine. So that's hopefully awesome. that helps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and more conversations to be had. And especially next week, everyone. Uh, again, you're automatically registered for this four part series. Uh, so the third one, it's going to be establishing your retirement income stream. So that's going to be uh, Wednesday, February 23rd at 9 a.m. So we hope to have you on. A lot of good, uh, you know, everyone was was paying attention. Everyone was engaged. So I really appreciate that. And, you know, we're, we're definitely here for you to provide you any kind of solution that we can for, you know, ongoing growth and, you know, that protection for not only yourself, but your clients as well. And so we want, if you have any clients that you think might benefit from this, have them hop on uh, on the next one. And again, we're gonna be sending this, uh, all of the documents uh, that we talked about, we're gonna be sending that out after the meeting along with our contact information. So definitely stay tuned, let's stay in communication, let's talk more about this. Jimmy, I might just call you offline just cause it's it's fun talking to you. Uh, so I yeah. learn more and more because yeah. this, this has been a foreign concept, but I'm learning so much every time we have these. Yeah. Um, and for those of you who missed the first one, we're going to have a lot more in the future. We might actually revamp this one. There's a lot of additional topics that we're going to be doing some uh, surveys to all of you about what you'd like to see next. So it's, um, yeah, it, it's just been an absolute uh, pleasure. So again, I wanted to thank everyone. We're going to give you back the rest of your day. I know we went a little bit over. So again, happy, happy selling. Uh, have a great rest of your day and we'll all talk very, very soon. And I'll leave it off to Jimmy for any final comments before we close out the meeting. Nope, I was just gonna say, really looking forward to next week, creating retirement income, because that's what it's all about. It's not about bragging about how much you have in your 401k, even though we all uh, assign our you know life's work to how much money do I have, but it's really the people who create the most income. So it's a very fun topic to teach next week. And I want you to all just think about how much monthly income, if you had it coming in, could you trade that with and do other time and things that you enjoy? So thank you again, great group. Sorry for going over a little bit with my stories, but uh, looking forward to next week and hoping you got a lot out of the last hour plus. All right, thanks so much. And with that, everyone have a good day. All right, thanks, Nathan.